Welcome to Wonder Tour with Derek Cobb and Drew Perot, where we are learning leadership lessons from your favorite stories. Hi, I'm Brian Nutwell. And I'm Drew Perot. And we are on a journey to become better leaders by touring fantastic worlds and inspiring lore by going on a wonder tour. We connect leadership concepts to story context because it sticks to our brains better. You can find out more at wondertourpodcast.com. We're back with part two of Skyfall. In part one, we focused on reaching a level of dissatisfaction where the organization is willing to make changes and how we can have an aligned realization within the organization of how we're going to move forward and break through the limit that we're up against. Now in part two, we're going to focus more on the individual as we look at Bond's journey in Skyfall. We can really empathize with Bond here as we can see that he has this past trauma in his life that he has been unwilling to go back to. Skyfall is a wonderful Bond movie because it's not just this static Bond character, but he becomes very dynamic, having to make the tough decision to go backwards in order to be able to move forwards. Our central metaphor this time is going to be the mirror. We see all this different imagery of mirrors from the intro all the way to the ending. We see the biggest mirror of all is Bond versus Silva, the villain in the movie. Silva is very similar to Bond, except Silva has desubscribed from the mission and has chosen to create his own mission that is driven by his emotions and this revenge narrative. As we go through this, we're going to focus on Bond's realization that he goes through and maybe how we in our own lives can identify realizations as they're happening and try to approach realizations so that we can get to limit breaks. And then we're gonna talk about what Bond learns about paying the cost and what that means for us. Bond goes through this symbolic journey in Skyfall that forces him to go back into his past before he can move forward, before he can beat Silva. And that same journey beat is relevant to each one of us in our own lives. Welcome to Wonder Tour. This is Brian. I'm here with Drew once again. In our first episode on Skyfall, as Drew said, we focused on the top down, the MI6 as the organization grappling with change. But of course, as we always talk about, leadership and organizational change is not about the stuff. It's not about the processes. It's not just about the technology. It always comes down to the people. And so in this episode and in this movie, we see the individual person of especially Bond, but also M and some of the other characters sort of dealing themselves with what does it mean to adapt to the new situation? What does it mean to deal with a threat that you don't completely understand or that can't be solved with your old ways of doing things? I love this because in this movie, it's framed up as a mirror. Like you said, it's it's this duality of Bond and Silva are basically the same character with only one difference. And the only one difference is that Bond has attached to the mission of preserve the society of Great Britain or Western freedom or whatever vague narrative you want to attach to it. Whereas Silva is using all of the same techniques and some new tricks that he's learned, but he was attached to the mentor figure of M. And when she very pragmatically sort of let him down, let him become captured and tortured in his past, he has made his whole life's mission about revenge on that person. So that's kind of what I wanted to talk about a little bit to start with is this risk of mistaking the leader for the mission. The risk of even if you are the mentor figure or if you've attached to a mentor figure who's helped you in your life and who has put you in a position to succeed, if you are focused on the person rather than on the purpose or the principle that you're trying to achieve together, that can potentially lead you down some mistaken paths, right? 
people are invaluably fallible. They will make mistakes. Even if they aren't making mistakes, it might be the right choice for them and their organization not to reward you personally. Right. And so they can let you down, you know, professionally or personally or organizationally. And if your reason for following them is because of them, because of your personal relationship with your attachment to them, then that can very quickly turn sour. And we love these narratives, right? You know, we we love narratives on Wonder Tour and we love the revenge story. We love the quarterback who left one team going back to play against his old team. Like, you know, these are all human relationships. So it's not that you shouldn't have a relationship with your leader. I want to hear what you think, Drew, about this. How do you balance recognizing the value of a mentorship relationship with being able to kind of let go of that relationship when its time is expired or being able to recognize that that relationship is in context of an organizational goal and the bigger mission may be the real priority? This one's a really tough one to grapple with. Like you said, I think from an emotional perspective, we can't pull ourselves away from the leaders that we love. It's really hard to do that. There is something within human nature that, like you said, wants those relationships and it really values those emotions. And so I don't think at all that we're trying to steer away from that. We're just trying to find the wisdom between the lines in this one. The challenge is, what if somebody like M is the best person to lead for decades and decades? Because it's a little bit easier when you just say, okay, every once in a while in our company, we need to move leaders around because we can't have the people becoming tied to the leader instead of the mission. And that's a easier practice to implement. And a lot of companies do that, not only because of this paradigm we're dealing with here, that just kind of tends to happen. You know, a great example that you have is like one of your parents, right? If you have a parent that you look up to or had a parent that you look up to, then oftentimes they are the leader. And as much as they espoused a mission, you can continue to carry on that mission. If you don't have that person anymore, it takes a chunk out of you. And that's natural. And we should expect that. So I think my initial tip of the nose response to this is to be attached to the leader and the mission. You have to have both of the things that you're attached to. And and ideally, obviously, I think you'd have the mission a little bit higher on the totem pole. Yeah. As you're talking, what I'm thinking is going back to our, our Hobbit episode, right? Talking about leadership styles of Gandalf versus Thorin, where, you know, and this this is another part of the burden of leadership, right? But this actually does come back to the leader. When you are mentoring somebody, when you're in a position of leadership or authority, when you're trying to propose a compelling and challenging vision. It's on you to make that vision. It's not about you. Again, tying in our Doctor Strange episode, right? So our Thorin leadership example was, you should follow me because I am the chosen prince who will lead us back to Erebor and will defeat the dragon and will become the great dwarven kingdom again. But it's all about him. Like he's not about his people should succeed. He wants to protect his people, but he's the one that has to do it. He centers himself in the mission. He centers himself in the success. Whereas Gandalf is not. The Gandalf leadership style we've talked about is Gandalf is there to make sure that you succeed, to make sure that you get the learning and the support that you need and that you don't get beaten by orcs at the time when you're not ready. But other than that, he's there for the subordinates to have their own limit breaks and to level up and to go on to success. And so as the leader, if you are encouraging that personal attachment, Or if you're leading by example, like I'm working infinitely hard, therefore you should work infinitely hard and I will be incredibly successful and you can ride my coattails, then they're attached to you. They believe in the mission because they believe you and not the other way around. It's compelling and it's delightful and those leaders are charismatic and powerful and they get a lot of stuff done and you want to live up to their expectations. But the risk there is that they don't care about you as as a follower except to the extent that you help them succeed. 
if they let you down, if that relationship turns sour, it can turn really sour. Mm -hmm. And so as a leader, our challenge is to form those warm human relationships, to honestly believe in the people that work for us and to strive to help them achieve their limit breaks, but to do it in the context of we're achieving this larger mission. And even if I step away, you're still going to want to achieve this mission. I think M does a good job of that. And as I'm coming to terms with this, it does seem like the decision that M makes that we hear about that we don't get to see with Silva to let him go in a, in a prisoner exchange, essentially, is OK. I think that decision was potentially the wise decision in the moment because she's able to get back the other operatives. And she has to, as the conductor role, you know, we kind of talked about the conductor role with Luthen and Gandalf and stuff. They play this certain leader archetype role. You have to be willing to make the tough decisions because they fall on you. You aren't the mission, but you are the one who mm -hmm. has to make the tough calls to tell Eve to take the shot or whatever. And right. this is a similar moment to her telling Eve to take the shot, obviously, where the whole thing is mirrored onto each other throughout the movie. And it makes sense that that was what needed to happen because Silva needed to have a realization. And not that M knew that Eve was going to shoot Bond off the train, but Bond also needed to have a realization. So it just so happens that he also had to have a realization in order to move forward. Having that leader is critical who does that. So I think understanding when we're in the follower side of this, understanding that the conductor role needs to make those calls and that we need to be bought into the mission even after some of those calls seemingly fail in the short run. And that if that leader totally, totally fails, it doesn't mean that the mission wasn't worth following. Right. So I hope never to be in this position as a leader where you're faced with like, we have to lay off 20% of our company or the whole thing's going to go out of business and we'll lay everybody off. That would be a horrible situation to be in. And that's a business version of it, right? The military versions of it are worse. I hope never to be in that position, but that is even worse if you have been the kind of leader where the reason that people are there is for you, is that they trust you. If they're there for the mission and the success of the company and they're working in that direction, then everybody sort of understands what conversation you're having, right? And if somebody gets laid off, they're still going to be really pissed off at you. And that's just going to be how it works. If you personally get laid off, you're going to be angry and you're going to be angry at the boss that decided you were one of the 20%. But it'll be worse. Like the only thing that M could have potentially done better in this situation, right, is if she had caught Silva in his attachment to her and his going off the reservation into unsolicited activities earlier where she didn't have to sacrifice him, where he wasn't expendable. Looking out for those opportunities, looking out for like, well, this person is making it all about me as a leader. That's not healthy. That's not a place that we need to get to as an organization, because one way or another, you're going to go away. One way or another, you're going to get promoted to another job or you're going to quit and go to another company or you're going to eventually get old and retire. And those people are going to have to thrive without you. Letting them make it about you is a mistake, even if it's not your idea, but especially a mistake if you're the one sort of encouraging that cult of personality. Mm. And I think everything we've talked about so far is pretty predicated on the past. So I think looking at that, we can kind of say that the past is complex and it's very hard to discern causation as we look at it. So it doesn't mean that we can't look to the past. It just means that we all probably have triumphs and pains and stuff like that that we can look back at and we can say, was that caused by a leadership figure in my life? Or we can say, other people went through pain. Was that a decision that I made? Or was that, you know, some combination of many different things happening in the environment? And it's really hard to discern whose quote unquote fault it actually was. So how to move past that, though, in terms of a limit break, because the limit break has nothing to do with attribution of what's the word I'm looking for here? Well, blame or the root yeah. cause, right? 
Yeah, and that's I think that's the mistake we see here. You know, like we talked in the last episode, MI6 is still kind of fighting the last war. They haven't quite grappled with what the future threats are, what the kind of organization need to be. But even more so than that, Silva is relitigating past grievances. Like his entire life is about trying to fix a problem that can't be fixed, that he got betrayed and that he's going to take it out on somebody. There's no flavor of revenge that moves the world forward. There's no flavor of revenge that increases human flourishing, right? You know, so, you know, justice is one thing, but like going and taking out your anger on someone or something is not going to make the world a better place. And so I think that's really what we see here. Like you say, you you do maybe have to deal, acknowledge what has happened in your past and how it's influenced you and maybe potentially go back and kind of sit through the pain and decide what lesson you're going to learn from it. And we see some of that in this movie. But just living in the past is never a way forward. Yeah, self-evidently like, you know, so let's talk about this changing the game piece. Let's talk about what do they do? What does this movie propose to us to get out of that just living in the past and start to play from ahead? So up until a certain point, we see our mirror characters, Bond and Silva, both living in the past. Obviously, they're living out their lives in the present, but they are focused on who they used to be or they're dealing with their parent issues or whatever that they were going through. They both have an M complex going on here. Brian, I'm going to pass it back to you for our moment for this episode. Talk to me about when Bond reaches the realization stage of his limit break. Yeah, so exactly as you've said, Silva has been, as the antagonist, he's had a plan the whole time. His plan is about redressing past grievances, but he's being very proactive. He's put all this stuff into place. He's thought through the contingencies. He's got this really elaborate, ridiculous Bond villain master plan of getting himself captured and then let out and going and attacking the parliament building. He's living in the past, but he at least has a plan. Bond has been using his old tricks, but completely reactive up until the middle of the movie when he's chasing Silva through the sewers and then comes up and rescues him in the chaos of the gunfight in this parliament hearing. Then the realization that Bond has is that, and he actually says this out loud, like, we've been playing his game. We've been playing catch up the whole time. We need to get out ahead. We need to choose the ground of our own battle. And so what he does is he effectively kidnaps M. He, he takes her not into the safety of more MI6 protection, but like just sort of disappears off the grid. And they go to a, a storage shed in London somewhere and unveil, of course, the old Aston Martin with which they're going to use to make their escape. Because although it's conspicuous, at least it doesn't have any tracking devices in it. He's going back to ground zero, right? And he literally says, we're going back in time. We're going to go revisit our past to deal with it because Silva's a character from the past and Bond's relationship with M is an artifact of the past. And this all stems from some really fundamental issues about their relationships as humans in this organization. So he's going back to the past, but he's not just doing that. He gets in the car and he's driving M to this off the grid place way out in remote Scotland, which turns out to be his childhood home before he was orphaned. And on the way there, he calls Q, the member of the team who's the new technology guy, and says, all right, we're going to couple my going back to the past with new skills, with being proactive in our enemy's domain. We're going to leave him a technological trail so that we can guide him into a place that we know the ground. And I think this is really important, is that the way for the organization to evolve, the way to deal with the unknown threat is not just by relitigating the past, but is not by abandoning the past either. We know what our strengths are. We need to use those strengths, but we need to find a way to actually couple them with new ways of behaving, with new approaches, and have those things complement each other rather than fight each other. And this is the first point in the movie 
where those things aren't fighting each other, where he's not grousing about the technology and where M's not trying to resist progress and change, where they're like, all right, we're going to lean into our strengths and use the new stuff that we've got access to to channel the narrative in the direction we want it to go. This is a really cool moment. Yeah, you get the symbolism coming on strong here. <laughs> like you said, you got the old Aston Martin. He's going back to his old house to revisit the old relationships. And it's a dark place. And you get that in the presentation of Skyfall. They board up all the windows. Everything there's covered in dust and it's old. You get the flame fighting with the darkness kind of visuals going on in the house. By the way, it had some really crappy HDR. I couldn't get past that. Like Bond's face was like blue. It's just, it's funny. It's like a 10 year old movie at this point, but there were some issues with the way that that movie was made, apparently. <laughs> or at least the way, there's some issues with the way that movie was produced and, and put out onto streaming services. <laughs> I'm just used to everything being all Dolby Vision and stuff like that at this point. Either way, you get this crazy symbolism all stacking up, and then you get the mirror moments in here. You see the mirror in the house. Kincaid is playing a trick on the bad guys with the mirror. You see the mirror is getting shattered. You see Bonds seeing himself in the glass. Heck, he's seeing Silva on the other side of the glass. Like, he's literally able to see what he could be if he's not able to get past his past. Yeah, the mirror antagonist is a really powerful story device. But like we said, Silva and Bond are basically the same character, except for that Bond is engaged in this whole thing. He has his attachment to M still, and he has apparently grappled with the fact that she got him into a bad situation and she got him shot off the train. He's forgiven her for that without actually getting an apology, but he came back because he was attached to the bigger mission. And so one of the fun little narrative through lines in this movie is the grander mission, which is never really expressed, is just sort of implied what MI6 does for a living, is crystallized into this hideous bulldog draped in a British flag Churchill statue thing that M has on her desk that recurs a couple times during the course of the movie and then shows up all the way at the very end. And that's sort of this symbolic element of this higher purpose, this sense of community that Bond is still attached to, that Silva apparently never internalized at all. And that's really the one difference between them. And so Bond, even when he goes back to his past, even when he's dealing with the fact that he's in this house where he was orphaned and all that, he still has a sense of community. His old gamekeeper shows up, Kincaid shows up, and he's just a sympathetic character. Like, you know, two hours into the movie, we introduce a brand new character that we've never heard of before that's an element from his childhood, apparently. But he's just immediately sympathetic because he has this warm personal relationship. You know, Which is so, contrasted with the house. Right. That is kind of another character that comes in at the end of the movie here that you're not really expecting. Well, you're expecting it because it's a Bond movie and you saw it in the opening crawl yeah. these pictures of this ghoulish house. <laughs> but yeah, like you get Kincaid is the other side of that. It's the warm side of his past. And you can tell that he still does fondly think about Kincaid and Kincaid immediately accepts him back. And he's like, oh, I wonder what you do for a living or whatever. But he doesn't yeah. judge him for anything. Yeah. One of the things I like about this movie, we're talking about sort of the personal arc piece of it, is that they really spend some time leaning into the relationship between Bond and M, between, you know, his his mentor figure, also kind of mother figure, of course. But the two of them, that, that whole relationship is developed very subtly. Like, they're basically just snarking at each other the whole time. She's like, go find, eject me out of the car. Like, what do you want, an apology? Like, they don't know, neither of them say anything explicit, right? They're always basically complaining about each other. But the way they pitch it and the way you see it evolving is like, you can sense that they do still have this mutual respect, this mutual love. 
and that they are both, you know, kind of just, well, oh, great, you're back. Where the hell have you been? Like, you know, n- nothing else other than where the hell have you been? The mission's still on. Let's go. And so they have all these little interactions where it's clear that they care for each other and they're not bothering to really express it because they're much more comfortable with their British stiff upper lip snark. Like when he but, says that when he says he didn't care for the obituary, exactly. and, and then except for the part about the mission, basically, he's like, oh, the mission yeah, exactly an exemplar of British fortitude. He's like, yeah, that part I liked. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. it's it's great to see that back and forth, and it can be totally different in our lives where we're not Bond and we do show our emotions a little bit more and have more time on screen to develop relationships and go through the difficult times. I think taking this back to our limit break narrative here, this realization moment that he has to go back, it comes with an acceptance of the cost that has to be paid. He knows that he's going to have to go through something difficult. So he goes back to the dark house with all the bad memories in it. Remember, they tell us that he went into the tunnel after his parents died and that he hid in there for days and Kincaid was having to draw him back out of it. So he's having to go back into this really dark area in order to be able to move forward and really just staying focused on Bond's journey here. I think this kind of runs through life for us. We're not saying this is the only way to move forward, but we're saying this is the main way we have found to move forward is when you're stuck at a limit break. Maybe it's because we're stuck in the past and we need to go back, understand the past, get closure on the past, and maybe even blow the whole house up sometimes. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the the relationship throughout that we see between Bond and M is a relationship of amazingly unbreakable trust, right? Even when she makes a hard decision that gets him hurt, he sulks for a while, but he comes back and he trusts her not because he doesn't think she'll ever hurt him, but because he thinks that they believe in the same thing. They're both aligned on the same mission. So Bond's worldview is all about, I came out of this dark place as a child and I found this mission to attach to, and this is this has been defined who I am. Whereas Silva's whole world narrative is in his opening monologue is about realizing that we're all just rats eating each other and you just need to be the strong rat. <laughs> you know? So they've learned different lessons from the same experience. And it's because of Silva's lack of attachment to any larger meaning in the world. And we can, you know, This is not the podcast to talk about all the possible larger meanings in the world, but the value of it and the power of having people that trust each other's faith in the mission enough to get past their personal moments when they fail each other, that's really powerful. That's, I think, a takeaway that we can follow. Yeah, and we see it all come to a head at the end here when you get M faced with her chance for redemption. She has the opportunity via a very twisted opportunity to finish off Silva by shooting both of them, and she's not willing to do it. She's saying, like, look, it wasn't about giving you up in that moment. That's what this is saying to me. It wasn't about giving you up because I didn't care about you. It wasn't about giving you up because I didn't believe in you. It was because this is the only way that I saw to move forward for your character. And she does care about him, clearly. She's very disturbed by everything that she's seeing because she cared about him so much. And then you get the bond closure afterwards where he's holding Emma as she passes away. What I see being passed on to him is the softness that he's needed this whole time. It's mm-hmm. that... He learned all the hard skills from M and from, you know, MI6 and stuff like that. But he doesn't do very well with the soft skills unless they're getting him somewhere. So the ability to actually wear your emotions. We see Bond cry. I'm not sure how many times we see Bond cry in all of the other films, but we actually see him crying here as he loses M. And that's his breakthrough moment. 
that is the moment where the cost has been paid, the breakthrough happens, and now he can enter flow. He can go back and work with Q and Mallory. The organization can transform as the individuals transform. There you go. Yeah, no, that's you're right. That's the moment there. And so Silva gets to the point of he can take his revenge. He's standing in front of him. She's injured. He has a gun. He's got it. And he can't do it because what he's trying to accomplish is to erase the past. He's just like, OK, well, just shoot us both and then it will all be over. And she's like, that's not a thing. I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. That's not what I'm trying to accomplish here. So you're right. We have this moment where Bond has the catharsis moment of he's lost this personal relationship. Like he's paid the cost of he's had to go through losing the house, which he always hated and putting people in, in jeopardy and all of the pain that he went through. But then he actually loses M, which was sort of inevitable. Your mentors, your leaders will leave you. But he's realized that, you know, she says, at least I got one thing right. And the one thing she got right wasn't like she trained James Bond to kill people. The one thing she got right was she trained James Bond to care about the mission more than about individual people, right? Yep. And he's realized that. He's realized that he needed to get her out of London to save many other people from getting killed to where there's just sort of minimal body count that was available. And then he, even though he lost her, he diffused the threat and he was now prepared to go back and be the clean-cut, steely-eyed fit for duty, what mission do you need me to go after next, Bond, that believed in the organization, that is helping push the organization forward, and that's willing to attach to a new leader who has a clear vision that's aligned with his values. I want to add another quandary here, just right at the end. I mean, aren't all the villains that we're looking at or the anti-heroes just dealing with past trauma that is unresolved, they're just living in the past? I mean, you see that in almost every single movie, the villain is living in the past instead of addressing the past, and the hero has to go into the past, address it, so that they can achieve the limit break. I mean, is that what you see, Brian? That's a great question. I hadn't thought about it that way. I think there are, that's certainly a really common flavor. The Darth Vader character is mostly about the past. Maybe the Emperor character isn't. If we go look at Avatar, like the bad guys there, you know, the, the cor evil corporation is, they're being very proactive. They just, they don't have any morals, right? They don't care about the human flourishing part or alien flourishing in that context. <laughs> but I think you're right. That's a trap. And that's a trap that can lead to this sort of really negative behaviors. If you keep trying to fix a thing in the past, that's not really available to you, right? You can't relitigate it. If you get that stuck, if you can't move past, <laughs> you can't move beyond getting the world back to a way that it used to be or redressing some grievance, there's no version of that that increases human flourishing. And often these villains are earlier or incomplete or twisted versions of ourselves, incomplete or twisted versions of the hero. And you're right. That's one of the places where you can go off the rails. Yeah. And oftentimes we don't get to come up against our own mere selves in practice in the real world. But you can in your thought life because you can really start to think about yourself in those sort of ways. And you can think about the different branching paths ahead of you. There's the opportunity to go the course path and become more callous and mm -hmm. not reintegrate with the past. And if that happens, then it becomes harder and harder to transform in the future. We see here with Silva, him coming up against this limit. He thinks that he's going to break the limit when he kills M in some blaze of glory. And finally, the past can be the past. What he realizes is that's not going to make the past the past at all. And he doesn't know how he's going to move forward once he gets to that moment. He realizes that his limit break was just the limit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He didn't have a new flow state that he was trying to achieve. 
He couldn't imagine any future past killing him. Like, literally, he couldn't imagine anything else other than that. That was his only ultimate goal. There was no flow for him afterwards. He realizes that once he's finally confronting the next step, right? He's like, he realizes the next moment is going to be meaningless now. Right. And so that's an interesting one. Maybe we always need to check in and make sure that our mission aligns with not just solving a problem, but achieving a new flow state, right? Mm -hmm. Like what's the new reality we want to live in? That's not just like it's our current reality minus this one annoying thing. And you could probably look at, you might find mirror antagonists in the world. You might find a person in the in your organization who drives you crazy, who has completely incompatible goals. And if you look at it, it might turn out that they are quite similar to you in all other respects, right? That might be the most challenging or difficult person to deal with is someone with whom you're not well aligned, but are otherwise similar. So that's an interesting thing to look at. We'll have to revisit that one in a future episode, I think. As we kind of come to our takeaways here, I just love how we're able to take these specific situations and generalize them. And we can start to notice that these narrative arcs that we see are meaningful. The narrative arcs that we see in movies can be applied to our lives, whether it's a hero's journey or some variation on the hero's journey or some other archetypal model in general. If we're seeing that trend in art, if we're seeing that trend in history, chances are you might see that trend again in your life. It's like these stories continue to play out with repetition and variation, repetition and variation. Yeah. And there aren't a lot of movies about the flow state. There aren't a lot of movies about operational excellence. There aren't a lot of movies about somebody that's really successful coming to work every day and just doing the thing to make customers happy, right? Like, Not because that's not important or enjoyable, but because there's very little to be learned from the flow state itself. It's not very exciting. Like what we want for our stories are lessons on how to overcome problems. What we want from Wonder Tour is looking at stories for lessons on how to overcome problems, on how to achieve higher performance, about how to tell a story to our team so that we can all achieve a limit break. And so those are the kinds of stories that we apparently love as humans is stories of growth and stories of perseverance and stories of overcoming challenges. But they always involve the change. They always involve the limit break or they very frequently do. Those seems to be the ones that are, are successful and popular that we pick for our episodes. And so I think that's very natural. The leadership challenge of getting people to do the same thing every day at high quality is a challenge. But once they're good at it, you shouldn't have to do much like you're just you're solving small problems. The You're challenge just waiting for the dissatisfaction to roll into that point. Right, right. <laughs> the challenge of being a leader is leading in a direction that is away from the current state to a better state, or why would you be going there? So when you're trying to achieve that new flow, it's a dynamic world. Your inputs, your constraints, your competitors, your environment are always changing. You will always have the challenge to find the new flow state. And that's really what we're talking about here. Good deal. So let me take us through our key takeaways here, Brian. Number one, we learned that living in the past won't allow us to make a limit break. It just won't. (laughs) But if we want to have that breakthrough, then we might need to let go of the past. And one of the ways that we can let go of the past is just like Bond does here to return to Skyfall. And when we return, one of the encouragements that we can have is that, yeah, there might be an old dark house there, but there's some warmth to it as well. As much as we might have closed that door in our mind and tried to block out the things that caused us pain, you know, there's growth, there's learning. And there were probably warm moments like Kincaid that are going to surprise us. And then engaging with that past, that might be the cost that we need to pay in order to reach a limit break, in order to become the next best version of ourselves for the good of others. 
lastly, we just need to make sure that our mission in step one is aligned with a magnanimous flow in step four. Otherwise, we can end up like Silva running up against a false limit break that once we get to the time to actually pay the cost or do the thing, we realize, oh, I don't even know what flow looks like and if the flow is going to be good for me at all. Right. Because the only reason it's worth going back into that past pain, because I think, Brian, you and I have both been through that many a time, and it is painful, and you do put it off. You might put it off for a year, you might put it off for a decade, but you do put it off because you're scared of it. The encouragement here is that the flow on the other side of that limit break is extremely refreshing. And we need to remind each other of that. The only thing I would add to that is that just going into the past with the same mindset or same tool set that you had before isn't maybe sufficient, right? Is that you need to bring some new thinking. You need to bring a new approach. You need to bring some new technology. Like, so don't be afraid to couple things that you've learned. Don't be afraid to try new things and couple them with your strengths. So that was the other thing that I saw. And, you know, the reason the bond plan worked here and the thing that MI6 needed to learn was to take their existing strengths and figure out how to align them with new things that they learned, with things that help them better address the, the changes in the world around them. But do those things together is the path to the limit break, not just abandon the old things and do the new things or just go back to the past and live there or learn from there. All right. Well, that was a lot of fun. I'm really excited about this conversation. I hadn't really crystallized limit breaks even as a concept in my head before we started this series. And now I really am enjoying this formula and thinking about the kind of the phases and where we might be in various different levels up that we're trying to gain in our lives at all times and what that looks like as a person and what that looks like as a leader. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. So that'll be it for this episode. Thanks everyone for joining us as always. Come join us next week when we will be back with what is widely considered one of the greatest movies of all time, The Shawshank Redemption. We're going to end our series on limit breaks with a special kind of limit break, a prison break, and how we can all relate that to our own lives. Until next time, just remember, as always, character is destiny.